was the J cut. This is the K cut. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Provider to Say podcast. And I also sometimes write for Films Hotel. And my main interests are no budget film and 70s cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Hotel. I love to write about classical film, silent cinema, lost movies, and world cinema. Andreas here. I love uh, art house cinema and international cinema and everything in between. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. Um, and uh, this is not only another episode of the K-Cut, but it is another entry to our cinematic smorgasbord series. So what this is, is once a month, we recommend films of each other's tastes to one another. As you can tell, we like... Uh, we have we have pretty different tastes, but quite a bit of overlap, and we recommend films that the other co-host has not seen. Furthermore, we get into one unified film that none of us have seen, and that's our collective pick. So, in the second half of this episode, we are going to get into uh, said film, uh, The Cat Returns, which is a Studio Ghibli classic, and we're going to find out what we all thought about that. But before we get into that, we're going to do our individual picks. So, for this month, James recommended something to me, I recommended something to Rachel, and Rachel recommended something to James. And we're going to find out what those films are very shortly. Who wants to go first with their findings? Before one of us speaks, I'd also like to point out that this is our 90th episode, so if our podcast was a person, it would be like a great-grandparent. Wow, that mm-hmm. that's impressive. Uh, our, our podcast is the lady from Titanic at this point, uh, you know, exactly. reflecting on her, uh, her younger years, wondering where it all went and if the door really was big enough. Anyway, so uh, who wants to go first? I can go first. Sure. So what did Rachel recommend you? Uh, so uh, Rachel recommended me the 1948 Italian neorealist classic Bicycle Thieves. Wow. What a great, powerful way to start this episode. What did you think? Uh, I thought it was an interesting film. I was very entertained. I mean, for the listeners, uh, it's a fairly simple story. It's about a guy who... You know, he's in line to get assigned work and he gets picked for a job, but he needs a bike. But the problem is he doesn't have his bicycle because he had to pawn it for money. So he ends up talking to his wife. They go get it out. And when he's on this job, while he's not paying attention, you know, because obviously he's doing work, someone takes the bike and runs off. And then the rest of the movie just is it just unfolds in this like epic adventure of him trying to find who took this bike and get his bike back. Yeah, you basically summed it up. Um, Did you enjoy the film? Yeah, I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, it got ridiculous at times, but it's just really interesting that they were able to take something so simple and expand it into something for an entire feature. I mean, you know, the whole time you're kind of like wondering, like, what happened to this bike? Where is it? Because the way they go about it is interesting because they actually go to like a marketplace where they have like bikes and bike parts to see if someone parted it out and sold it. And then, you know, there's a couple other places they check and then uh, it all kind of culminates into him, you know, seemingly falsely accusing somebody who slightly looks like the person who took it. And it just, yeah, just the way it escalates was really fascinating. Yeah. And it becomes the whole center of this person's existence because um, obviously since it was 1948, Italy was in economic dire straits at that point as a result of the war. And, 
neorealism really grew out of those struggles, and I think this is a very fine example of that particular subgenre. I also really enjoyed uh, the dynamic with the main character and his son. Oh, yeah. Because his son's with him the entire time. And he's he actually helps him. Like, he's the one who, like, fixes the bike often. So he he knows more about the bike than, you know, his own dad. So it's like he's kind of along for the ride and, you know, just seeing how everything gets played out. And it's just like, wow. And in the end, he learns that life is disappointing. That, that's not a spoiler. <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah. That's Italian yeah. neorealism yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I adore this film. I've seen it a number of times. It's interesting that you label it as fun, because I do know that Vittoria De Sica, the uh, filmmaker, is known for having some of the most depressing films ever created. Like, Umberto D is even more depressing than this, and then you have Two Women, which is uh, Sophia Loren's big Oscar-winning moment, which is, like, again, just completely devastating. But uh, he's also known at, for something else, which isn't talked about nearly as much, some of his lighter stuff, like Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, and then there's also his Palme d'Or winning film, Miracle in Milan, which incorporates a lot of like fantasy elements into the whole neorealist experience. So um, it's interesting that he picked up on maybe some of the, the warmer elements of Bicycle Thieves, because that's often chalked up as being, again, a very, a very uh, heartbreaking film, if anything. Oh right. Well, I I think it's more fun. It is. It's it's one of those instances where, despite being a simple concept, which you know, if anyone else might have done it, it could have been rather bland. It does enough to keep you interested with the different like characters and settings that they kind of go through. Because you know, one minute they're in the streets, then you know, next minute he's in a church questioning somebody. You know, which is kind of in poor taste because you know when they're having a mass and he's like, "Hey, who took my bike?" Well, I feel like uh, Victoria De Sica is really good at channeling the desperation of the citizens of Italy during these uh, financial crises. You know, he's up there with uh, Roberto Rossellini as well, and um, uh, so many of the uh, neorealist masters, which I would would personally go with De Sica as being the greatest of that movement. Um, It's it's tough, because... um, yeah, I mean, a lot of things are through these films are done through desperation, and a lot of it is symbolically said, you know, with, you know, you pointed out how the sun was a lot more um, with it when it came to, like, the technological advances or uh, figuring out, you know, how to fix or repair said bike. And, you know, that's Jessica's way of basically saying, you know, we can't pit you know, the different generations against each other. We need to kind of work together, get things done. But in reality, a lot of people were making moves of desperation in the same way that he was doing something that's really out of turn, you know, trying to interrupt a mass for this. Somebody did the same thing to him. They stole his bike. So, you know, there's there's a lot being said here. Agreed. Uh, James, how much did you know about Italian neorealism going into this? I didn't know much, but I it's always kind of been on my radar because it's often brought up, you know, within my interest of like low budget film, like Italian neorealism is kind of like underground film before underground film was a thing. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. I feel like, Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong, a big reason why you might have picked this for, for James, who loves, you know, the indie cinema stuff. Uh, would a lot of that have to do with the fact that these were un, like not professional actors that were that were selected for these parts? Yeah, low budget, non professional actors, the sort of deep, deep realism that they were trying to achieve. I felt that would all appeal to James with the independent film thing. 
Yeah, it definitely, you know, and this one has always been kind of on my radar of of one that just comes up as far as, you know, like older films that are more lower budget. So it was like, you know, like I said, the smorgasbord is always a good opportunity for me to watch films that I've always mean to, but just never get around. And just all the time you guys seem to like pick the ones where I'm like, oh, I've been meaning to watch this. And I'm glad I did. It's definitely, you know, I, I like watching these films. It's like I've never really been that big into classic cinema but i have found that if i watch older films i understand newer films better because i mean the succession of inspiration i totally get that there's so many things that you think are kind of old and overdone but when you see when they originally happened you're like oh yes this was a game changer like 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 seeing this it like french new wave makes even more sense now that I've kind of seen what Italian neorealism has brought to the table. Yeah, I'd also recommend to any listeners the film Rockers, which is a Jamaican film. We brought it up when I initially assigned this, but um, it's pretty much a similar story to Bicycle Thieves, but um, it's set in Jamaica, and it's also kind of a reggae concert movie at the same time, and it uses a lot of the same style as Italian neorealism, so any film fans looking for something kind of new, that's a good one. Yeah, I feel like that's uh, a great recommendation and a great callback as well. Mm. Alrighty, well, um, what about you, Rachel? What were you uh, suggested by me? And please, for love of God, please tell me that it was okay. <laughs> okay, so yes, I was assigned Lage d'Or by uh, Louis Bunuel, and Salvador Dali was involved in this one too. And watching it, it occurred to me that Bunuel was absolutely that little kid in your second grade class who was a little too into bugs. <laughs> yeah like oh my god this movie is crazy it's you know it's not quite as out there as in Chanel de Lou, but it is highly surrealist it's all over the place I don't even know where to begin to describe the plot but there's like scorpions there's body horror there's disrespect for the institutions like the upper class and the church all kinds of stuff all over the place and essentially it's a couple who are trying to make love And throughout this film, they just keep getting thwarted in all kinds of weird ways, and then it goes kind of off the rails. Although really, it did kind of start there in the first place. It is the kind of film where it is in its own universe and you are expected to adapt to it rather than most films, which are the other way around. It's very discombobulating, but I think that film fan should check it out. Yeah, it's it's interesting because on one hand, I would absolutely place Louis Buñuel in my top ten... Uh, certainly in my top 10 favorite filmmakers of all time, but possibly in my top five. Possibly. It's, it's, it's a tough ranking. On the other hand, though, when you were describing it as a very, uh, a very savage film, angry about the aristocrats, uh, trying to, you know, put people into these purgatories where they're like suffering and they can't do like a, a, like, you know, a simple, um, uh, act of pleasure, or, uh, you know, something that brings them joy. And there's bugs and there's scorpions and weird weird stuff happening. I was like, damn, he's done that a lot, hasn't he? Are you describing yeah. Lodge Door or Exterminating Angel or Discreet Charm? You know, like, that's, like, yeah, that, that happens a lot with his films, but I don't mind. <laughs> Say what you will about the man, but he is thematically consistent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I feel like Lodge Door... Um, I discovered that when I was doing my decades work for Films Fatale and I was like working backwards and I was like, you know, I need to see this film because he kind of took a hiatus until the decade afterwards 
and he wasn't okay you know i just said what i said about him but his 40s and 50s stuff is quite different than mm-hmm. his super hyper crazy surreal stuff from the 60s and 70s that just went fully overboard but those are more akin to a shot on Delu and this film but i wasn't aware of that so i actually think this is like one of my favorites of his um i don't know how you feel but uh, yeah, completely unhinged, and it's not quite as strange as on Shadow on Delu, but it's interesting. It's interesting to see what he was doing with his first feature of this sort. Yeah, he did kind of go almost conventional for a little while, <laughs> or like realistic, kinda. Yeah, let's say. I will say that um, I think Lajdor is just the teeniest bit calmer than Enchandalu. Like, there's nothing like that one famous shot everyone knows from Enchandalu. So, if you were kind of put off by that film, I wouldn't let let I wouldn't let that put me off of Lajdor. That's a fair point. There's still strange stuff going on, especially um, some sort of like commentary on fetishization and that sort of a thing, which is pretty ahead of its time, considering this is like from the 30s. But mm-hmm. um, it's quite yeah. explicit. Oh yeah, it's not as let's say disturbing because I mean, uh, look, I don't get disturbed by many things, but seeing the um, the eyeball scene in Anshinandalu that. <laughs> That trips me up every time, even though I know how it's done. Uh, luckily, you don't really see that in Lodge Door. <laughs> Just other weird stuff. Maybe not Maybe not the best film for people who are not scared of bugs, or who are scared of bugs, though. Maybe not the best director in general. <laughs> like, yeah, again, he's the bug kid. <laughs> <laughs> Ants, scorpions, beetles, cockroaches. God, what else is there? Like, uh, a, a lot of bugs in this film. So a lot of bugs. But hey, that's, that is okay by me. Yeah. Uh, James, what did you think of it? Or did you get around to it? I did watch it. Uh, I thought it was pretty wild. So <laughs> I just from the talks you two have had of Benyel on the show, I was like, okay, I'm in for like, I'm in for a treat. But then I saw Salvador Dali co-wrote the screenplay and I'm like, okay, what kind of trouble are these two going to get into? Cause it's almost like this, I, I've, this pairing's like a retro, super retro version of like Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Basically. Like, like it's like, oh, there's no limits to what we could do. Like when I saw the bugs in the beginning, I was like, okay. And then it started to progress. And I'm like, okay, what exactly is going on here? Cause they kind of had like this weird, like it was like, it was like bugs. And then like, I forgot. Um, oh, the, uh, the deaths of the, the major cans. Or the, is that what they were called? I can't remember I people in the beginning. And then they're like, oh, history regresses. And then we have a whole society now. And I was like, oh, wait, what? And then it kind of goes into its like actual story. And I'm like, what is going on? Uh, oh, I thought some really interesting like camera work and like editing for the time. Like they de- they definitely try to push the limits of what they of what they could at the time. Oh, absolutely! But yeah, just some of that imagery. I'm just like, who comes up with this? And then I just realized, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this makes sense. But the fact that you know Pinot is the bug kid, I'm just like, okay, now nah, I'm not surprised knowing this. The way I see it, you know, if we're wrapping up this this conversation, um, the way I see it, and I say this every opportunity that I can, uh, most people discovering film view something like uh, A Andalou, or in this case, Lodge Door, as like a Salvador Dali film. But the more you study film, the more you realize it's actually like the work of Buniel. And it's as clear as day when you like check out other Bunyelian films, like, especially further down in his career. So, I don't know. I While Salvador Dali is kind of like the name a lot of people show up for, I like to think that this is their 
their ticket to seeing a whole filmography by somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, Boonwell never walked an anteater down the streets of Paris, so one point to Dolly. <laughs> to, yes, to be fair, uh, we have to give a little bit of credit to Salvador Dolly because, yeah, that man is a, is a uh, God, I, whatever it takes to own a pet anteater, if ethical, I would absolutely try and follow that path, but I don't think I'm qualified enough. So my favorite story of uh, Salvador Dali was he would go out to eat and he would always write checks to pay for his meals because people wouldn't actually cash the checks. They just keep it because it was his signature because of how valuable it was. So he would just get free meals all the time. So if any celebrities are listening to our podcast, there's a life hack for you. Either that or Salvador Dali was basically like ahead of the curve when it came to like the idea of NFTs, but let's not, let's not go down that road, perhaps. Uh, uh, valuable assets as opposed to currency. Anyway, so um, on the other hand, uh, so, you know, we're, we're discussing very interesting filmmakers, Victoria De Sica, and then Louis Buñuel. Now we're going to get a little bit more contemporary with uh, Steven Soderbergh, uh, who I'm actually a big fan of, but not as big as you, James. What did you recommend me? Haha, so I I recommended you his uh, surrealist experimental comedy film, Schizopolis, which not only he wrote and directs, but he also starred in it. He was also the cinematographer. He was the co-editor, and he even com- helped compose music for it. Yeah, which, uh, you know, I'm used to his, uh, you know, him being a part of like the whole experience, you know, behind the camera and everything. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the pseudonyms are that he goes by. Um, oh, for editing, it's um, Marianne Bernard and then yeah. uh, Peter Andrews for uh, Peter Andrews, yeah. which, uh, which that those are his parents' names. Yeah. Peter Andrews for cinematography. Yeah. Um, I'm used to that, but uh, I remember when you recommended this to me, I was a little interested because I was like, Oh, I've never seen him act. And, uh, lo and behold, okay, so I feel like when people talk about Soderbergh, they, you know, you never know what their favorite film is going to be. For some people, it's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. For some people, it's Ocean's Eleven. For some people, it's something a little bit more uh, stripped down. Like, uh, you know, even his recent film, Kimmy, has a lot of love. Um, Unsane. Maybe something like Logan Lucky, which is a lot of fun for me personally. It's Traffic. I I love that sort of sort of uh, thing by him. Oh, traffic's really good too. Schizopolis is like unlike <laughs> anything of this that I've seen, and I'm not sure if he's got other stuff like this. But good God, this was insane. <laughs> this was very strange. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny because it's like it's amazing how kind of I don't know what to call it, like how very. There's some very smart humor going on here that might be lost on some people. Yeah. What I find interesting about this film, this came after Sex, Lies, and Videotape. For me, this is kind of like, this reminds me more of like the early Bergman or the early Scorsese or the early Kubrick where filmmakers were kind of getting their footing before their first opus. And Sex, Lies, and Videotape came before this. Now, granted, that's a lot more of a reserved film in terms of filmmaking, still daring in other, um, let's say, narrative aspects. But I guess with Schizopolis, I'm, I'm not too familiar with his other early stuff outside of Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Um, he just went hog wild. Like, let's try and stuff as many meta things in here as possible. And I feel like 
I don't know if he ever wanted to act, but I feel like he might have felt only he could act in this part because of how self-referential this film is. And he was so great, too. That was the crazy thing. Like, just so strange. <laughs> yeah, well, this was this was one of five commercial failures that happened after Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Oof. Wow. Are they all similar to this? No, they're not. A lot of them are different. Um, one of them... Um, because after Sex Lives of Videotape is Kafka, which is actually a movie about Franz Kafka and like kind of like made to be in the style of like his books, kind of like integrating his life and stuff like that. But that was like more of a black and white art house film. I still haven't seen it yet. I'm just going by like what I've read about it. And that didn't work out. Then there's King of the Hill, which was a film that starred a, a uh, young Jesse Bradford, which was more of a, oh, what was it? I think it was based on a book. I think it's based on somebody's life. Uh, oh, based on Depression era Bildung's Roman memoir of writer A.E. Hotchner. And uh, that, one, that one was... Propane a, in Texas? Um, I don't remember. I don't think so. It's uh, The whole thing is like, is this boy trying to kind of survive on his own? And he's like a compulsive liar. So he kind of just like grifts his way through every situation. And that one was actually like a, a, a well received critically. Then he does a movie called The Underneath, which was um, more of a drama. It was a crime film, and apparently that wasn't well received. But he apparently kind of checked out partway through filming that because he was thinking about doing Schizopolis. Because yeah, uh, I actually um, in the um, there's a book that I read that was um, I forgot what the book's called, but it's uh, half of the book is him in the um, kind of like working kind of thinking of this project and working on other things because of how everything's been going. He's trying to like, trying to figure out a way to get himself back out there. And, uh, the other half is, uh, a, um, it is an interview with, um, with, uh, Richard Lester. And it's funny because there's a character in the, in Schizopolis who they call a uh, Lester Richards. Ah, oh, yes. As an homage to him. But uh, yeah, this was just a strange movie that he just wanted. He said he wanted to do like a small crew, something small. And uh, this was the result. And uh, yeah, I got like a limited release because it was just a little too strange to put out a wide release. And yeah, it's just there's just so much strange stuff in here. But I don't know. It all works like there's like, you know, one character. uh, He speaks in like some like random gibberish dialect with people. And then there's a point where his characters because he plays more than one um instead of speaking english that he has them dubbed in different languages even though everyone else is speaking english that's cool yeah it's just it's just so bizarre that's also indicative of just like the uh the film as a whole like conflicting narratives just so much stuff going on at once which is either completely vapid on purpose or exceptionally dense like you have to dissect this and you have to be smart to do so. This is just, I don't even know how to explain what exactly goes on here outside of pure paranoia and um, actual like insanity at times. But I feel like while I can't dissect the film quite simply, not even as a means of like giving it away or anything, I feel like this was almost like a Freddy Got Fingered, where it's like a postmodern sort of like a, you're assessing what you're looking at. And, you know, that couldn't be more true with the fact that he 
Soderbergh himself, I think either in character or as the filmmaker behind the film, bookends the film by opening it and closing the film. Even with like a Q&A to like a, a invisible audience where we don't even actually hear the questions. And he gives nonsense answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think one of them was like involving food or something. <laughs> well, there's two particular things that I thought were absolutely hilarious. So Steve Soderbergh's main character, there is a point where he goes home to his wife and they only speak in template. So he walks in and says, generic greeting. And the wife goes, generic greeting returned. And then they just speak in like almost like Mad Lib speak. Uh, but it's also really interesting because the person who played his wife is actually his ex-wife, Betsy Brantley. Oh, interesting. And um, they also play with um, duality because each of their characters has a doppelganger. Okay. So I don't know if you notice that because it's like, because she appears again as a, an attractive woman number two, as she's referred to as. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to rewatch it because some of this might have been lost on me. Because again, there was so much of this self-referential borderline meta stuff going on. And... Yeah, it's one of those ones where it feels so alienating, where most people would probably not even want to watch this at all, but then it rewards those who do, and those who actually try to, like, reassess and reassess and reassess. Um, although, you know, it's almost like a, I don't know, like, a super-duper spicy condiment where most people on Earth wouldn't dare try it, but those who are super into it are like, man, i got to try that again. Like, I just got to <laughs> see more. Like, what other dishes this goes with? You know, you just want to discover it more. And that's kind of the boat that I'm in. Would I rewatch it right away right now? Probably not. But down the road, I've got to say, like, it's at least an interesting experiment by somebody who clearly never gave up trying different things. Oh, yeah. I didn't get around to it, but it does sound like a really worthwhile watch. Well, it's on the Criterion channel if you want to check it out sometime. Ah, perfect. And it's, like, very short. Was it even, like, an hour 20? It was, like, something really short. No, I think it was I think it was around 90 minutz maybe okay. 80 Maybe 80-something 80 80 something minutes. It was oh, close it's, to the apparently it's 96. Okay, apparently it didn't oh, even really? feel like that. Yeah. <laughs> it went it by feel- so fast because you were having fun, obviously. Uh, fun, or I was trying to just like wrap my head around what was going on. Just it's just such a frantic, neat experiment. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I don't even know what to liking this to. It's just very different. <laughs> I gotta keep you on your toes with these suggestions. Yeah, but at the same time, you could kind of do that with any Soderbergh film. Like you could like. Put them all, however many, like 40-something, in a hat, pull one out and be like, all right, side effects. Is this going to be anything like Magic Mike? And the answer is no, even though it came right after. Or it's like, all right, time to do the girlfriend experience. Is this anything like the informant? No, even though those were also back-to-back. So it's like, you just never know what you're going to get with this guy. And I like that. And even those four films I just brought up, none of them are like each other at all. So, Or, or like how Traffic and Aaron Brockovich came out in the same year. Because he'll just do that. And he was the first person since uh, Michael Curtiz in 1938 to get two Oscar nominations for director in the same year. Oh, wow. And what's interesting is one of those is like kind of Oscar baby and the other one is like authentically good cinema re- recognized by the Oscars which one's which that's up to you <laughs> but I think you know what my answer is but yeah he's what I like about Soderbergh while we wrap this up is 
I feel like he understands film almost better than anyone to the point that he can like mimic and replicate. He's kind of like if either of you are familiar with like Mike Patton, the singer of like, um, you know, Mr. Bungle or Faith No More or Phantomas. Uh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Basically, this guy who could do metal screaming, operatic singing, pop vocals, like he's a like a Backstreet Boy member, rapping, beatboxing. He was on Bjork's album Medjula as a beatboxer. This is a guy of like a thousand voices. Soderbergh's kind of like the filmmaker of a thousand different gazes. Kind of. For, for the hip-hop crowd, he's almost like Mad Lib. He just puts out a bunch of stuff and it's, you never know what you're going to get. But it's always at the very least entertaining. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it, it's like a student of all kinds and not like a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. He kind of is good at almost anything that he does. And even his worst stuff, like right now, I would chalk up his, work, his worst film that I've seen to be in the laundromat. Even then, it's like okay like it's like interesting it's clunky <laughs> it's clunky but it's like at least intriguing it's at least a worthwhile experiment just not a good end result so nonetheless uh now we should probably get into the most interesting film of the episode potentially potentially not that's uh the cat returns a i keep very... calling it revenge of the cat <laughs> no, but just as a nice cat, though. That's I mean, true. Uh, well, there are lots of cats. Some of them are nice. Some of them not so nice. That's true. But I think the uh, the uh, the titular cat is is a kind one because the uh, premise of the story is all about a young school student who uh, saves the cat from getting hit by a car, I believe, and then the uh, the cat. Winds up on its hind legs and basically thanks her, and she's like, "Oh my god, this thing can talk," <laughs> and that's how this thing starts. Yeah, and um, did you guys watch it in English or in Japanese? I did the English dub, or sorry, I just yeah, did the English, English dub. dub. Yeah, yeah, okay, because they had a really good cast. Like Anne Hathaway plays the lead, and Carrie Elwes is in it, and I can't remember everybody else, but there was a lot of really good stuff in there. Elliot Gould. Yes, that was who I was thinking of. Uh, Ross and Monica's dad. Yeah, and then what this ends up being is, like, kind of like a portal into this world where cats are kind of doing everything in humanoid form, and there's, like, this little cat society, and... Yeah, and she's expected to now be part of this world, and uh, naturally she's not having that, so the rest of the movie is just her trying to get out of it, basically. And they have some adventures along the way, but I don't want to get too much into them. It's, it's interesting because so much happens, but at the same time, the plot itself is, like, very basic. Girl enters cat kingdom, and then this is what happens. Like It's a very short film. Maybe this is what I was thinking of when I was referring to Schizopolis. This is, like, actually less than 80 minutes. Yeah, so. this is 75 minutes. <laughs> very this film is so much fun, though. So it's actually interesting because um, I didn't know this going into it. Uh, I was actually... I think uh, John, faithful listener and a mutual friend of Andres and I. Oh yes, he 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 messed right away. He's like, oh, I like the Cat Returns. He's like, it's not my favorite Ghibli film, but it's a good one. And then he let me know it's actually a, a spinoff of a prior film they released called Whisper of the Heart, which I had not seen. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. So I actually watched it. I watched that before, and it actually made me appreciate it a little bit more because. In Whisper of the Heart, the Baron is actually, he is actually just a statue 
in Whisper of the Heart, and the main character by the end starts writing a book with the character of Baron. Also, uh, it's also voiced by Carrie Elwes in that also. That makes way more sense now, because yeah, the end result of the Cat Returns is a little thin. So, yeah, the Cat Returns is like good, but it's it, it reminds me a lot of other Ghibli films, particularly Spirited Away, but not nearly as profound. Where Spirited Away rich. is, yeah, it's almost like Spirited Away is also kind of a very basic plot, but at the same time, what happens is just completely hypnotic and just spellbinding with uh, The Cat Returns, it's neat and interesting. But that's good to know because I actually did not know that. And I feel like, especially if that's a follow-up, I can only imagine Whisper of the Heart is probably more substantial. It's also interesting because um, the person who directed the film, uh, Hiroyuki Morita, it was his only film for the studio that he directed. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... I found that really interesting. It was like he did this one and then just never did directed a film for the studio again. But yeah, I don't know. It was fun. It was more like it was almost like a really good TV movie. You'd see him like a kids animated network. Exactly. Yeah, it, it had a very similar vibe. Either that or like an elongated short or featurette. But I don't know. I, I just thought it's like this. Like if you want something fun to watch, throw it on. Yeah, especially if you like cats. Yeah, when it comes to Studio Ghibli, it's not the very first film I would ever recommend people to watch. But if you're a big fan of Studio Ghibli, I would say give it a shot because it's at least a piece of that magic, but not the source of the magic of the studio. Agreed, yeah. I mean, I personally don't have too much more to say about it outside of it being pleasant and well animated uh, anybody else no that's pretty much it it's worth a watch but i wouldn't seek it out with huge priority i like that it was i like that it was fun and it's like i like when we don't have such heavy films every now and then oh well <laughs> on that note before we get into uh, some other some other heavy films um potentially i could be wrong rachel where could our listeners find us Okay, so we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut, and I usually say our cinematic smorgasbord picks here, but it's time to change over. Ah, yes. We're gonna get into the final portion of this episode. The shortest, but the one that we look forward to the most. It feels like Christmas every time. This is where we find out what we're gonna watch next, and I believe the communal pick is... I believe the collective pick is chosen by James this, this month, correct? Yes. That's right. Okay. Well, we'll save that for last. Who wants to find out their individual pick first? Uh, me. Okie dokie. So, are you ready for a devastating, heavy, harrowing, difficult, challenging film? Well, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer, because I'm not going to give you that, like I typically do. Instead, I'm going to provide you... I don't think you've seen this. I don't think you have. Um, with one of my all-time personal favorite films. So, Rachel knows exactly what it is. Rachel, your love of Catherine Hepburn on this podcast is warranted, but I feel like it outshines the uh, my personal favorite Hepburn. So, that's why I've got to bring her back into this a little more often. So, James, I don't think you've seen this. Have you seen... Possibly the most fascinating genre bending of all time, 
Charade. No, I have not. So, Charade is a brilliant film by Stanley Donan, who is also known for Singing in the Rain. And this film is a brilliant mashup of a romantic comedy, a murder mystery, like actual, like interesting whodunit dynamics, screwball comedy, and so much more. So, what you get here is not just a piece of everything, it's a full on murder mystery. A full-on screwball comedy, a full-on romantic falling-in-love story, and it stars Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, who are two of the greatest performers of all time. And to wrap up on this note, it is known as the greatest Hitchcock film that Hitchcock himself did not direct. While that actual claim, you know, you could debate, it was still made about this film. So you're getting Charade by Stanley Donan. When it comes to lighthearted stuff, it's possibly my own personal favorite. Okay, what am I going to watch? You are going to watch Amanda Cornell's Sammy Blood. Have you ever seen it? Uh, Sammy Blood in English. Uh, I actually have to look into this. Didn't you recommend that recently? I recommended it at some point, but I've never assigned it. I don't think I've seen this. No, I haven't seen this. Okay, yeah, it is a very famous film that came out a few years ago and got worldwide attention. And um, it's about Sami history in Sweden, which is not always the happiest topic but i think you'll find this film very interesting you know me i love scandinavian and swedish cinema so i can't wait for this all right so i guess it's my turn Alrighty. so i've decided to give you your own steven soderbergh experience oh boy yep uh i'm actually going to be assigning you a film called gray's anatomy not to be confused with the long-running drama wait 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 he did a gray's anatomy and a king of the hill (laughs) Yes. Okay. He is quite prophetic when it comes to American television. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about Grey's Anatomy, the movie. Yeah, it's actually a a dramatization. It's a film version of a dramatized monologue by actor and writer Spalding Gray. Okay. I'm down for this. Yeah, it's. Uh, I thought it might be interesting because I thought, you know, Schizopolis would appear kind of like to the more artsy stuff that he likes. And I feared this would kind of appeal to the theater kid in you because it's literally just like it's a monologue with like different sets and kind of different things happening. It's a That sounds wild. Is it on Criterion or anything? Yes, it is. Actually, both Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy were have were released for, by the Criterion Collection. Perfect. So they're, I believe they're both, they both are on the channel. Uh, yeah, he actually shot it. He shot it in 10 days in January 96, and it was during a break uh, when he was in pre-production for Schizopolis, because, you know, he's, like, super prolific like that. Sounds like a good choice. Fantastic. Alrighty, so, yeah, speaking of choices, what are we watching as a collective pick? Ah, yes, I'm going to, uh, because my last, uh, as as you know, I've been kind of doing things in stylistic trilogies, so we're all going to be watching a Steven Soderbergh film for the first time. Ooh. Uh, And I decided to go with the film Out of Sight which was released after Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy and was kind of his big comeback and really set up his dominoes for the rest of his career. Uh, It's a crime comedy film that stars George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. Oh, I've heard of this one, but I never actually saw it. I was molecules away from having seen this when I was doing all of my research. I just missed the cut. I'm very stoked because... uh, for a number of reasons, I've wanted to see this. First off, I've heard it's one of the better Jennifer Lopez performances. Secondly, it's his comeback, Seymour Soderbergh. Thirdly, the uh, Michael Keaton character in this film 
actually also appears in Jackie Brown. It's it's because it's the same character because the both movies were adapted from novels by the same author. Okay. Yeah. So I always felt like that part of the Jackie Brown experience was missing, which I know is not important at all, but still. Yeah. Uh, Quentin Tarantino actually made sure that um, they were able to just use the character for free. Oh, amazing. Well, that sounds promising. So anything else to say about the smorgasbord before we wrap things up? I'm looking forward to my movie. I know these make for the most interesting movie marathons. Oh, yeah. And if you want to partake at home, first off, thank you for listening. Secondly, you've got a little bit of homework to do. So you're going to be watching two films by Soderbergh, uh, Out of Sight and Grey's Anatomy, which I'm sure, akin to what we said earlier, are probably so starkly different from one another that you wouldn't even know it's the same filmmaker anyway. Furthermore, you've got the uh, Swedish film Sami Blood from a few years ago, and you've got Charade from back in the 60s. Charade being one of the films that fell for the legal loophole of Hollywood, where it's kind of available everywhere, legally, for free. So, it should be easy to find. That was the K-Cut. We are going into the L-Cut. Cut.